This episode of The Yarn is sponsored by Heinemann and their professional book, Every Kid a Writer. Colby talked with author Kelly Boswell about the book. Every Kid a Writer is a response to the question I probably hear the most from teachers with whom I work. And that question is, what about those kids who just don't like to write? So in this book, I set out to explore this topic a little further and really answer the question, why do writers in some classrooms seem reluctant while students in different classrooms dig into writing with enthusiasm and joy? And what I noticed is that the environment and the community we create in the classroom, along with some really specific and yet really simple teaching strategies, um, have an enormous impact on how students engage with writing. Writing is such an important skill. Every Kid a Writer provides six field-tested strategies to get everyone in the classroom writing with energy and enthusiasm. Visit Heinemann.com to learn more and order a copy. Welcome to The Yarn, a School Library Journal production. I'm Travis Yonker. I love talking about picture books with John Clausen. His approach to storytelling and illustration is just endlessly fascinating to me. So it was a pleasure to get together with John over Zoom back in February to talk about his latest book, The Rock from the Sky. Along the way, John hits on the genius of James Marshall, getting inspiration from Alfred Hitchcock, and of course, ginger ale. So let's begin. It's time to unravel The Rock from the Sky. going to talk today about um, Rock from the Sky, and um, I'm just really curious to know more about this book. Some of your books have like a long sort of gestation period. Is that, is that accurate? And if so, did this, was this book like that? Yes, and yeah, yes and no, I think. My books, I think that the, the, the hat ones anyway, um, the first one probably had a long gestation period, but I didn't know that that's what was going on with it. It sort of felt like it just fell out when it happened in like the space of, a, of an hour when I finally sort of figured out how to write it. But I think that it was like an alignment of a lot of things I'd been thinking about and it sort of spoiled me because I thought like, why doesn't this happen quickly other times? Yeah. Um, the second book in that trilogy took a little longer, but again, it felt relatively fast once we figured out how to write it. Um, and the third one took a long time, but I think there was a lot going on with that one. I think I was nervous about how sort of good response we'd gotten with the other two books. And so it tripped me up. And I was, I'm not sure if it was because I didn't have, I was trying to figure out how to fit a third book into that weird, whatever it was. But also, I think I was just really nervous, um, more so than with the other two, for sure. And so it took a long time. With this one, um, I had the title idea, uh, The Rock from the Sky, and then the title story, the premise of it years and years ago, but it never felt like a whole book. It felt like a, like a short story or part of something that was gonna be like part of a compilation or bigger ones. And actually it was part of the first draft of the third hat book of We Found a Hat, the turtle ones. It was initially two turtles standing under a rock. And then I kept adding on to that story and a lot of the stories from that collection, we, we pared it down and pared it down until we got We Found a Hat but I had that rock story left over and I had a couple other premises too that made it into this one. But when I got to it, I was like, this it doesn't fit the turtles anymore. It's funnier with like, it was funny with the turtles because they're so slow moving. Um, so I wanted to keep at least one turtle, 
but it, it, I had to sort of rethink it all. I had to scrap my old turtle guys because they were specific to We Found Hat and then put these new guys in. And there was something about that process that just felt like I'd subbed in these like <laughs> even worse actors than I normally get. Like not even my regular guys were available. I had to bring in these other guys. And so it just, the whole thing took on this tone of like, I don't know, like guys who, who had no business being on stage even. And so that feeling sort of permeated the whole book after that. And no one else knows about that. I wouldn't expect anyone else to pick up on that, but it was, it definitely helped me write it, how long it took to finally sit down with the stories. Yeah. What, how have you been describing what the book is about? Uh, <laughs> it's a tough one um, because it's about, like the, the initial story I think is pretty easy to describe, the rock falling from the sky above them somewhere and, and they have to sort of, uh, move out of the way unknowingly they don't know what's up there but then after that I don't know how to describe the book it's got a lot of what I found happily is that you can actually make it sound pretty punchy and lively if you just, just describe very basically what's going on in the book there's monsters and time travel and uh, near-death experiences and stuff but reading through it <laughs> no one else, no nothing happens it doesn't feel like almost anything happens but I, I feel like I have a nice pitch for it that sounds much more action-packed than the book ends up feeling to me and so I sort of toggle between those things where it's like nothing happens but then a lot of things happen simultaneously yeah so so you said that you had that initial story so the book is um five five short stories yeah five short yeah. stories and so the first one is the is the one that you initially had years ago from there it was sort of a process of continuing to think more about those characters or how did you end up adding to it yeah it was extrapolating well it was a couple of things because at the end of that story a rock does land from in the sky um and it was a short story like it wasn't it didn't feel like a whole book to me anyway and so it was just, I just thought it was interesting to then be like, all right, well then what, what does tomorrow feel like? Or what is that afternoon even like? This thing has just dropped and that's a fun sort of device, but then let's live here for a bit longer. Like it's a, I didn't want to just make up the world to sort of uh, make that rock exist. Once it lands, we still have to do tomorrow. And, um, and so sort of that, the next story after that is very sleepy and literally, but also just in its pace and everything, because it just felt like that would be what happens. These guys don't have much to do. And it's not like the rock changes anything about your day. You just have another thing in the, in the landscape. And so whatever that next story felt like I was really interested in, because it was like, that's just going to be this weird quiet thing with this giant rock in it. What's, what does that feel like? But also the first story, I had so many different ways to end how to get the characters out of harm's way. And I didn't really know which one to choose a lot of them were more practical. They were more like, why would you walk away from a spot you've chosen to, to sort of sit in or stand in for a long time? What would move you somewhere else physically? Um, and for a long time, it was practical stuff, you know, weather or wind, or they couldn't hear the other person, so they just needed to go closer. Um, and that's sort of still what happens is the last one. But the motivation to do that became that the one character was jealous of the other one for having made a new friend over in the other side of the book. And once that happened and it felt right to the, to the pair of them, then I was like, well, okay, now these guys have some baggage we can play with. Now there's a real, now there's some unsolved stuff and there's a dynamic here. One of them is kind of a jerk and the other one um, sort of doesn't want to upset him. We can keep going with that and we can kind of keep extrapolating on that and find out where it goes. And I don't think we solved it, but there's definitely more, there's definitely more of an arc to it now than there was with that, just that first story. So the third, the third hat book, um, 
sort of has parts. Yeah. Um, do you feel like this is sort of an extension of that a little bit? I mean, it's not, it's not related necessarily, but um, the storytelling unfolds maybe in a closer way to that third hat book. Yeah, it's an extension of that in terms of just playing with that format instead of, I liked writing that third book so much, that third hat book, because writing to chapter breaks is so much different than writing to a full-on picture book. Writing a full-on picture book is really difficult, um, partially because you're not, uh, you don't write to a breath. You write like this, whatever your initial premise is or those first few pages has to propel you through 30, 40, 50 pages of a book. And there's no rest. You have to just keep moving. And especially to keep like a two or three-year-old moving, it takes a huge amount of momentum at the beginning of a picture book to keep yourself going all the way through, I think. Um, but all of a sudden, with We Found a Hat with that third book, um, there were chapter breaks and the pacing actually had to, it felt more like a skipping stone where there was three arcs instead of just one long one. And you were writing almost, I, I, I talk about um, James Marshall a little bit when I think about this book too, because his um, George, and Martha, George and Martha stories uh, were these little ones and I didn't have them when I was little. So I was new to them when I found them after I got into books. And I always found that my biggest laugh when I was reading them was when you turn the page at the end of a story, but you don't know it's the end. And you realize that you're looking at another title page and that was how the last one ended. And yet that's when I laughed the hardest at those stories. It's like, that was it, that was the last beat. And then you sort of get it and the whole thing takes shape in your head and that's when you laugh, but you don't realize it until you turn the page. And I wanted to try for that with the, with the hat, with that third hat book, but more so with this one, where it was like, you turn the page and there's, it says part two and you're just like, what, that was it? <laughs> that was the whole story, that, that's all that you needed to do? And I, I was trying to write to that a little bit um, and playing with that more and more, but still connecting them. I don't think I had, I think it takes more bravery than I've got to disconnect the stories completely. I still wanted a full book where these characters sort of, it goes sequentially and there's still a relationship being sort of explored. Um, do, do you see yourself writing in that sort of way more in the future? It's very fun. I think it would have to depend on, again, it, it suited these two guys too, because they're so low key. I, in my mind, they're so, they're like a comedy duo or something, right? They kind of shuffle out on stage facing the audience and they, they only have like two or three minutes in them at a time anyway. I don't think they have like an operatic <laughs> story in them. And so it fit, that, it fit them to have these like skits rather than to have this, this like operatic thing happen. Um, I think if I found even more stuff for these two guys to do, I would do it. They've, you know, they've probably got more in them if I found enough. Five stories is a lot to, to give them already, but we'll see how it goes. But it would have to fit that. I don't think that it's hard to say whether they came out of me wanting to do shorter stories or whether the shorter stories came out of just who they end up sort of being in my head. But um, yeah. I'm open to it because it's really fun. I'm, I'm interested to see how it goes over with the kids too, because it's a longer book, but it's, you know, shorter stories. So hopefully it works out. It's funny when you talk about the characters like shuffling out on stage and stuff. One, one of the first things I notice is when the first two characters are out there, um, they're just, they're not looking at each other. They're, no. looking, they're looking right at the reader. And right. So you really do get that sense of like, whoa, they know I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> that's always been a trick that I pull and I feel like I'm inconsistent with it a little bit these days I want my hat back was that was the entire motivation for the book was that they were nervous to be there and no one knew what they were doing because that's how I felt but then uh, this is not my hat he was presenting to us but I don't think he felt like he was on stage he was more talking to himself lit like for sure and then this third one 
they sort of mix it. They present their problem very formally, but then what ends up happening isn't stagey. They're, they really are in it as far as I'm concerned. So this one, I think that first story is very stagey where they come out and they do their bit and they're looking right at us and they're sort of like speaking almost a little too loudly for the audience in the back or something. But then after that first story is over, I feel like maybe, it, maybe the rest of that book is supposed to be just them after everyone's gone home. It feels less stagey and more personal in those other ones, which is how I kind of like that, that it's sort of this rock lands and that's the end of our show, but then let's stick around. What do these guys kind of talk in a lower way about when, after it's over, you know? I definitely get that feel from it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because they're not staring like that every story. And, and most of them after that start with them, with them looking right at each other and really speaking to each other. And so I think I needed that formal start, but I thought I sort of left it behind um, after that first story. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so this, not, not to nerd out too hard on picture books here, but I feel <laughs> no, like... No, uh, let's do it. That's why we're here. <laughs> I feel like, so I feel like a lot of your books have like a lot of directionality to them. Like, I think, um, like a lot of the hat books, there's a lot of like horizontal movement. I mm. think in your shape books there is, but yeah. then there's also like, like Sam and Dave dig a hole. There's a lot of like vertical, mm -hmm. like the lines going vertical on that. Yeah. And I feel like on this book, um, it's a little bit of a mixture of both. Like initially I would think, Oh, this one's kind of more vertical, but it really is. It's horizontal too. I guess I just wonder, you know, how much do you think about that directionality thing? Is that something that it excites you about making picture books or, you know, cause I do feel like it's, there's tons of picture books out there that don't have any directionality at all. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I don't know how you do that. I, 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 sometimes I wish I could try it out. I'd, I'd like, I think that the next few books might have more of that where you sort of leave this device behind because I've milked it a lot. Um, there's just, I think that I, my first few jobs were in theater as like just, you know, an apprentice stage painter painting things black behind the set so the lights wouldn't catch them and stuff. But it's still a very influential place to be. And I really like reading plays. And that was the first stuff I really got excited about reading. And even in high school was plays. And so there's something about the artificiality of plays and stages and sets that really suits my thinking about picture books, because both of them are sort of overdone for the audience. They're supposed to sort of um, everyone's talking a bit loudly and overacting because they want to be seen by the, by the back row and like things are bent to favor the audience. All that stuff I, I, I do myself in picture books because it suits who you're doing it for, right? You have a very young audience who's still learning about storytelling, just the mechanics of it. And often they're being presented to a group who's sort of trying to see what you're looking at. And so, and writing to that really suits me too, because I don't write naturalistically. I write really stiffly because I'm nervous. And so everyone's sort of over declaring what it is they have to say, even if they're lying or not really saying all they should say. Um, all of that seems to suit, you know, picture books and plays at the same time. And so it just sort of suits the idea also of a contained amount of horizontal space that you, you could wander towards or like a spotlight almost hitting something and being like, now we're going to look over there and the stage just got a little wider or something like that. Um, it just, uh, there's a, there, and also there's an easy way of getting a premise out of that. If you think about um, just characters, <laughs> my dad said something once that always stuck with me. He was so funny. We were talking about ideas for books. I think I was stuck in one of the hat books. I just couldn't think of what to do or something. And so he said something like, you know, it's always really funny to me is characters who like, or like animals who meet each other. 
like when I see like a squirrel meet another squirrel, it's so funny that animals just meet each other. And I thought that was like the funniest thing I'd ever heard, the idea of like animals meeting each other. And I had a story and I still want to solve it of just animals like just walking horizontally and just sort of passing each other. You have to keep track of who's passing who and who's not passing who. And maybe one of them's being chased by another one. And like there's a whole, I tried it a few times and it's just too much to keep track of for even, even me, much less a, a younger audience. But that idea of just intersectioning, like intersecting cast members, not even having anything to do, but just what happens when they meet um, is just super attractive and very clear visually too, right? As long as you can keep, um, because I was a storyboarder for a minute um, in animation. And one of the big lessons you learn in storyboarding is home direction and away direction. If there's a chase scene or something like that, usually where you want the character to go is always either screen left or screen right. And that's consistent no matter what's going on on screen. You want your character just in your mind to be making progress in one direction or the other. And then if they're being impeded, that's headed the other direction. And so it's just a very clear storytelling tool. And it usually means someone wants something in one direction or the other. And so there's a lot of help for you as a storyteller to just keep those things clear. And it suggests stories really often. And so yeah, it's something I go back to a lot when I'm stuck, just because I'm like, I don't know what to do next. And so, well, just put two characters on a giant plane. You'll get, that'll start you off pretty, pretty quickly. Yeah. I, yeah. Think it's, I think it makes the books work so well when you're reading them to kids. I hope so. I, I, I worried that this one was actually a bit more of an animated idea than normal. I worried that, like, especially a falling rock was more of a moving idea that you'd want to sort of cut to a screen with clouds, you know, scrolling by <laughs> to tell that story. I was hoping that, you know, we'd be able to do it just as a floating rock and you'd get it. But it does, like the, the page turn when the rock lands, I worry that that might be more of an animated idea than a picture book idea, but I hope that it doesn't feel, it feels like it's taking advantage of page turns too. That was the moment, that was probably my biggest laugh in the book. <laughs> oh, good, oh, good, I, I'm glad. Is when I turn the, <laughs> you turn the page and it's not like, it's not like, um, clouds of dust and no 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 big like (laughs) crater being created it's just it's just the rock the giant massive rock taking up that whole side of the spread is just there and then there's just like a cut you know a couple of little little pebbles there was a big realization for me in that page because i did have a page a version of that page with dust having been kicked up a little bit um and then I sat there with it for like a week and I thought, no, no, this is all wrong. It doesn't make like, of course it looks right because a, a, a giant rock would kick up a bunch of dust, but it's too, it's too in the middle of action. I'm not choosing the right moment or something. It doesn't suit what I'm doing here. And it's not, it doesn't suit what I'm usually into. It's like, I think I like choosing moments um, like way after something's happened. <laughs> I, don't like so, I don't like showing things happening. I'm too nervous about how I, I think the dust looked okay, but it looked too real too for the set. Like everything, drawing effects like that always was a little bit too real. Um, but there was something philosophical about it too, where I was like, I don't think this is why I'm doing this book is to show a bunch of dust. Yeah, um, yeah it was a weird, I couldn't quite verbalize it to myself why I, I didn't want that, but I didn't. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like, Tell me if I'm wrong here. I feel like the end of the third hat book, um, we found a hat. It's like it's like you're starting to dabble in a little sci-fi. Is, <laughs> is that fair? Like you were just like very lightly dabbling, and then I feel like in this book, um, with the, sort of the the monster that shows up later on, you're kind of like dabbling a little bit more. Is that something that's like interesting to you? Do you agree with that or no? I I agree with it, or I don't mind it anyway. I don't. I'm not a huge sci-fi like reader, I read a little bit of it. And certainly when I was in high school, I read more of it. 
um, I think I like, I was doing an interview once with like a more sort of a, a lady who was used to interviewing sort of older, like adult or people, adults who write for adults. And we were talking about writing for animals. And she mentioned something about how like, or I was talking about how it's sort of like with animals, you have to set up the rules every time. We don't really know when we start a book about animals, what they're capable of. Are they capable of eating each other? Do they live in houses? Do they wear clothes? We have to set up all those rules every time. And she said, that's sort of like fantasy writing. It's how we would define fantasy writing. It's like you spend the first, or maybe you do it on the go, or maybe you spend the first few chapters just setting up your rules. How does this place work? And I think that there is, you know, sci-fi as a general genre, I don't think appeals to me as much as it does like the openness of it, how much there is to set up for your audience before they know how to move around or even not setting things up. We don't know that that alien monster guy who's in our book, I don't even know what he, like, we don't know what he is. I think he's an alien. I think somehow he has to do with both them dreaming him up, but also something to do with the arrival of the rock. There's, there's a connection there and I don't want to define it, but I think it fits. And sci-fi that does that, that kind of leaves holes in things um, Arthur C. Clarke was really good at that. Some of the more poetic guys who didn't want to explain everything about how everything worked. You sort of felt it instead of knew it. Um, I like that kind of writing, but I don't think I'm especially headed for like sci-fi specifically, but it, it's good because it's so open. So speaking of the, the alien monster, so, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's kind of like the, that adds the danger into this book. How do you feel about that in general in, in your books? Are you aware that there, there needs to be some sort of a danger element to the story. Is there, you know, how does that work? I guess. Not always. I think that that's what I was sort of interested in this one too, is that the, the stories about danger are sort of sandwiched in, or, or they're sandwiching stories without any danger at all. There's, you know, a story about a nap and a story about <laughs> like a, like a sunset being missed and stuff. There's no real danger stakes there, but then on either side of the book, there's like massive danger. Um, but I've also become more interested, I think, well, this isn't true, but for this book it was, where the danger being less and less knowable as far as its motives, if it has any at all. The first hat book was very much about the bear's capabilities of you know, eating the rabbit and whether he could or whether he did. And then, um, but the second one with the big fish, that was much more interesting to me because this big fish was just this driving force. He wasn't complicated. It wasn't like he was deciding something. He just woke up and that was, he was like a robot. He was going to do it. If he caught you, he was going to get you. And I like that a lot more. It's much more up my alley to understand or not understand, I guess, because I don't understand violence, I don't think. And that's why I like to do that stuff is because it sort of, it explores it without solving it. Um, you can talk about how it feels to be in a world with it, but that doesn't mean you have to say, you know, why it's there or especially not, you know, justify it for any reason. And both those characters, both the rock falling from the sky and the alien, we have no idea what, why he's so upset. We don't know why he does anything he does. Um, but it's still a threat. It still might get you. And in the end, the alien, not you know, to spoil it, but like the alien is taken down by the same unknowable thing. Uh, you just feel like you just missed it. You don't feel like you solved anything or that you, uh, you foiled him. You just got lucky in, a, in the opposite way. And I relate to that a lot. It's how I feel in the world most of the time is that like if something goes right or wrong, I feel like I just dodged it or caught it by accident or something. It just, I relate to that feeling of danger and stuff, but I don't pretend to, it's like no country for old men, right? It's like that guy. It just, it's just a force. It's, it's just this force that probably will never be stopped, but we have to sort of learn that it's out there. And, um, and also it's never, 
really deserved. Do you know what I mean? Like so much of, of I, I get, feel like it's dangerous as soon as you start ascribing consequences that you think might actually fit the crime. Um, nobody in the book deserves to be hit by a rock. I, I would argue not even the alien does. Um, but it doesn't mean it won't happen every now and then to someone. And so even that, not answering why that is or why it happens, because there isn't really any answer a lot of the time. And that's important to talk about too with kids. Is there aren't answers a lot of times to why things happen to people. Um, but that's not the point. You know, we, we aren't, we're not there to sort of sit around asking why, because we're not going to have all the answers, but we have to sort of understand that it does and, and learn how to deal with that. And those things sort of being left ambiguous, but also really being staged clearly and showing that they happen um, is still super interesting to me. Yeah. yeah. I just randomly this week came across this video and it was, it was Alfred Hitchcock and he was um, talking to like the American Film Institute or something. Man, are we maybe we're talking about the same thing. What, what, yeah, what did he say? And, and there, he was talking about this bomb theory. Did, yes, you, yes, yes, yes. Okay. I see, I posted this exact thing. Oh, you did? Um, yeah, this, this was the main, this video. Okay, so we're going to get ahead of our listeners a little bit, but that oh, was the funny. main driving force for this book. Um, and I think it was so attractive to me. You should, you should explain it. You'll probably do a better job than I would. Well, so the, in the video, and I saw it, it was, um, there was some like list online of like the, the biggest plot twists or something in movies, <laughs> you know? And like, hey, like, I'm a, like everyone else, I'm a sucker for a good list, right. you know? So <laughs> I'm reading this list and the person who's writing it is shared this video from Alfred Hitchcock. And he, he talks about how this, this bomb theory of sort of like, um, um, building drama in, in a yeah. story and he says you know you could have five people sitting around a table and they're all having a conversation and yeah. it's a really boring conversation and after five minutes there's a bomb under the table and it, it explodes and the mm -hmm. audience gets you know five ten seconds of shock mm -hmm. but if you tell the audience um, at the very beginning of the scene that there's a bomb under the table then that sort of mundane boring conversation like takes on this totally heightened yes meaning. yeah and that's so funny. I, I, I no, when we had to do, we had to put a video together for like bookstores to like, you know, like know the book was coming out. And I yeah. quote that I like read it to the video <laughs> to be like, this is the, this is the book. This is the book. Because what he does, he talks about, like he says, says five people around a table talking about baseball, whatever you like, very boring, very dull. Um, but then he says, but then a bomb goes off, right? Yeah. And then, but he says, now go back and tell the audience, but you haven't changed anything about that scene. They're still talking about baseball and it's still very dry. And what I've always wanted my books to look like is people talking about baseball, just sitting around, not doing anything, but how do you, I think that more and more I'm being interested in, it gets weird when you talk about it as specifically for books for kids, because that's not what I'm talking about, but like permission to do that. If you how do you make that entertaining? How do you still get your boring looking drawing? How do you get two guys standing on either side of a flower on a flat landscape, but then load that? How do you get permission for that to be your cover? How do you get permission for that to be the whole first half of your book? Um, and when I heard him talk about, like, he's my favorite guy. There's so many books. We found a hat, or no, I, this is not my hat, it's, it's just Psycho. That's just me ripping <laughs> off Psycho. And it's, there's so many things about Hitchcock's storytelling and his mechanics um, and how he enjoys giving so much uh even in that bit he talks about now your audience is working for you now they're yep. working for you and that's the whole goal is like of all these with the picture books too it's just get them working they're going to do a much better job than you will of, of moving this thing forward just give them give them enough um 
but he understood how to follow through too, which is much harder to know, I think. He under, like at the end of that speech, he talks about how it's very important that the bomb doesn't go off, or if it does, they're right out the window just in time. Um, and, and he says, if you don't have the bomb go off, or if, it, if they don't get away just in time, the audience gets very upset. And that because you've, you've, you've built them up into this state. <laughs> and understanding not only how to get them into a state, but then how to take care of them at the end of that state um, is so interesting. And so he, he, was, he was so cool because he wasn't even feeling his way through that. He knew it like he knew how a car runs or something. He just knew it. Um, I love listening to talk about that stuff. But that was, the, that was this book that we just, I was like, well, we can't have a bomb, obviously. We, we can have, what can we have? And like a rock from the sky is just this impossible thing. And it's impossible enough that we can use it here. It's absurd enough that I think we can use it without having too much reference to the world, hopefully. Um, but it still does exactly the same thing. We get our 10 pages of guys talking about baseball. Um, it's permission. It's great. I love, I'm so, that's so cool that you heard it and related it back to this thing. because I, I, I love that speech. Wow. Yeah. What a coincidence. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I love how you can tell, I, I like how he's honest too about how um, he said, you know, in some of my early films, I didn't do it the right way. He screwed it up. Yeah, he yeah. had one. What was it? He had one about a bomb. A little boy was carrying a bomb. Terrible setup. And he gets on a bus. He doesn't know he's carrying it. He's making a delivery or something. And then I think it cuts wide to a city, you know, just generally with the bus somewhere in it. And the bus blows up. Mm. And he says, and, I, and the audience hated me after that. They, I didn't get them back. Um, and yeah, he knew it. Like, you just, you can't do that. You're not allowed. And it's so funny to, to like think of those rules because so often I, when I start a story... I think like, what can we break? What, what rules can we bust up with this? You feel sort of like a punk that wants to sort of bend and, and change things or do something new. But so often you find out that it's not so much about breaking the rules. It's just about adhering to them even strong, more strongly than you thought you were going to. <laughs> it's all like, it's all in the execution. Yeah, it's exactly. It's all in how you're going to do it. But there's nothing about, you know, you don't end up breaking any rules because the audience will hate you for that. You want to, if you're there for the same reasons he was and the same reasons I like to be, you're going to, you don't want to upset them or alienate them or traumatize them. You want to entertain them. You want to give them a good story. So you, you talked about like trying new things a little bit, you know, um, the, 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 the desire to do that. Is there something that in this book where you look at it and you're, and you're like, Yes, I, I, I did that. I did that in a picture book and I, I'm, I'm happy about that. The alien kind of came out of nowhere. I didn't, he wasn't in the first few drafts. I needed something. I knew I needed a beat, but I didn't know what it was. And so often my impulse in almost every way, both like in terms of color and staging and character design and everything is to just turn it down to like two out of 10, just see how low we can go before we, you know, lose the audience completely. But just before that, um, and so I knew I needed some sort of beat to happen that finishes off the story, but I didn't know what it was. And as soon as this alien walked out in that dream, I was like, there's our ending too. We have to bring this guy back. Like it has to ramp up instead. And I've never done, like there's, there's some immediate violence too in that book, not to any character, but the alien comes out and fries this flower just to show what he can do as far as the story is concerned. I don't know why he does it, but um, as far as we're concerned, now we know he's capable of like this death ray. And even that, um, for me felt much more in the moment than I'm usually used to being on a page. Sort of his frying of something. Like you, you see the beam and this thing is all in ashes, but it's still being actively fried. Choosing that moment was new for me. I think I would have normally skipped that or somehow managed to show the before and after, but not the immediate. But I needed to show the immediate. 
Um, and so I think there is something to me anyway that felt new about doing that. I, I'm really enjoying talking to you, but I want to move to uh, some sort of quicker questions. Now, sure, this, sure. Yeah. This, this is the sort of thing that really makes sense when you're sitting in front of like a group of like a live audience and you're doing an interview. <laughs> right. Because I call it the speed round. Um, and when you're, it's just two guys on a zoom, it seems kind of weird, but I think, <laughs> I think we'll try it here and see how, okay. All right. All right. These are just going to be sort of quick questions and we'll sort of end with these. Okay. So favorite snack while working. Oh no. Um, I really like a pear if it's not too hard. I like cutting up a pear and ha I eat it really fast, I guess usually, but I like pears a lot, but they have to be, if they're too hard, I get sick <laughs> that's terrible <laughs> so are you a fellow fruit snob i am i am a oh, ripe in terms of ripe, i'm a ripeness snob right so you need to catch it just right i feel like with with covid and stuff you don't really get to choose your fruit anymore so you have to <laughs> right. roll the dice and it comes in whatever state it's at but when yeah when things are when things are normal i do um yeah i'm kind of a fruit snob there's certain kind of apples i don't touch anymore and certain pears and things you you have to pick just the right ones yeah for sure same here. Um, so what's your favorite tool for making art? You know what I'm really liking lately, but you have to do it again, sort of the right context is um, really, really cheap markers, like Crayola markers you get at like Target or something. The ones we have them around for the kids now, we didn't before. Um, but even before they were born, I remember starting to get into them because they're so, you get to see the lines you did. If you're coloring in a shape, they're so cheap, they usually leave felt and stuff behind on the paper. And so you get to see like your work inside. It's not, it doesn't leave a solid blended shape. It leaves a bunch of thoughts. Um, and if I do it over a light table, then it really shows those lines. And I've been trying to figure out a reason to do like book artwork that way, where you'd photograph um, marker work over a light table that just shows all that stuff. That's my favorite. It's, it's just so much, everything looks good. It's hard to do something you don't like the look of in those circumstances. You just love it. Isn't that funny when you're younger, like you want that marker that's going to fill in everything perfectly. <laughs> yeah. And then you get a little bit older and you start to like the fact that you can see all that. I, I agree with you. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's energy inside. And there's a, there's something funny about like you, you I kind of chuckle when I see it, but it's also just, it looks great. It's like the, almost the cheaper the marker, the better. It, if it starts to run out halfway through almost better, like all that stuff, all the faults that a, like a 10 cent marker could have is my favorite. Yeah. Uh, favorite animal. Oh no. Um, these are tough questions. <laughs> um, I've always loved penguins, daily penguins specifically. There's something about that, the proportions of those ones in particular, how they walk. They're almost like other characters where they're just solid. There's no limbs or anything. They're just these little toddling shapes. Um, yeah. Probably. Have you had penguins in any of your books? No, I've, uh, I've started a bunch of penguin stories and there's one sort of on deck that's an adaptation of a, of a Grimm's tale um, for someday. Um, but I, I don't, but they would, you would believe it, right? Like I, they, they suit the rest of the things I draw. Um, there yeah. was a version of We Found a Hat that sort of had penguins. They were like these weird hybrid penguin things. Um, but they had the proportions of them. They just sort of, you can see them from miles away. If they're on a hill or something, you just know they're penguins. They're so great that way. Yeah. Um, what's the best hour of the day to, to work? To work? Yeah. Right now, probably just before quitting time, unfortunately, which is for me around three to four. 
um, then I, I go back in with the kids. But I, I've had bosses tell me this when I worked in animation too. I seem to always do best under pressure, even though I hate working that way. I don't want that, that to be the case. But when the clock finally gets that last hour is when I finally solve everything and actually want to go to work. It used to be late at night before we had kids. I loved and I miss like turning on a baseball game or something in the background and working at like 10. That was my favorite. Um, but yeah, life doesn't really <laughs> permit that anymore. <laughs> so, so evening more than morning. Yeah. 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 For sure. I, I mornings are for emails and, and procrastination. <laughs> <laughs> um, favorite color. To use or to like in the world? Those are two different questions mm, probably. In the world. Um, probably in the world green. Yeah, depends on the shade, but yeah, probably green. Yeah, there's a neutrality to it. <laughs> what was your first car? My first car I ever bought myself was a 1979 Honda CVCC, which is a precursor to the Civic. And that makes me sound like I know much more about cars than I do. Um, I still have it. It's, it lives at a mechanic shop in the valley somewhere and it's being fixed for years and years. I can't wait to get it back. But it's just this little hatchback. I bought it. I lived in Portland and I bought it on eBay in San Francisco for like $1,000. And I flew down to San Francisco and drove it back up to Portland and it barely made it. I drove right into the mechanic shop and like everything just fell off. <laughs> um, and I, I drove it in Portland where I lived up there for a few years and just pushed it everywhere I went. Just every time we hit a stop sign or something, I got out and pushed it to like, it was just a, a, just a mess, but I love it. It's my favorite. It's just this little hatchback. It looks like a person. That was oh, my first class. Yeah. Um, is there a hobby that you have uh, that maybe people might not expect or just something that you're into that maybe people might not think of? Um, people might not think of. I've been getting more and more, this probably fits. I, I don't think I have very many inconsistent parts of me right now. Um, but I've been getting more and more into like DIY furniture. There's this guy who just died named Enzo Mari. He was an Italian designer and I really loved his work. I mostly saw his graphic stuff at first and then it turned out he was mostly well known for designing furniture that was designed and built with like stock size planks that you would get at hardware stores or something and just put together with nails. Like he, he made sure that you could build it that way. Um, and it was such a cool project and all the stuff he designed was so neat. And then I saw a Donald Dud Judd desk at a museum somewhere and I thought like, it felt like meeting a brother or something. I, I couldn't believe this desk, it's beautiful. But I don't know why that stuff talks to me because I've never been very practical or like handy. Maybe that's why, it's because it does look so simple. It feels like I could do it. Um, but I, I'm starting to get more and more into it and I'd love to get better at it. Uh, is there a certain type of book that you would like to make down the road that you haven't made yet? Yeah, I'd love to make um, like a very, like, a, like an early chapter book um, hitting a slightly older, not too old, you know, third grade. Um, but and I, think, I think we're close. I think I, I'm, I'm close to, to starting on one. Um, but I've always wanted to do something that a little longer and probably a little scarier without pulling my punches as much. Favorite beverage, alcoholic or otherwise? Ginger ale. Like a Canada dry guy or? Yeah, probably just on patriotic grounds. I do enjoy, 
I'm not too picky. Seagram's is good too. I don't like the really sharp stuff. When you get one now at like a fancy restaurant, they pulled the tab off some ancient bottle and you're like, that, that's, that gets to be a bit much for me. Ginger beer and stuff, it's fine. I usually for my cocktails, it's the same way. If it's a ginger cocktail mixed with whatever the heck they put, feel like putting in there, it's usually what I like. Um, but yeah, something gingery. <laughs> Have you ever had Werner's, which is a Michigan ginger oh, yeah. drink? I think I've probably had it in Michigan. Um, does it get out of Michigan? It doesn't get out of Michigan a whole lot. <laughs> and, and some people love it. It's, it's a very divisive ginger ale because it does not. Why is taste, that? It, it doesn't taste like any other ginger ale. Like it's like Schweppes and Canada Dry and all that. I feel like they're, right. they're kind of in the same zone. But Werner's is like its own separate thing. It just has is it sweeter taste. or not as sweet? Or can you um, put it that way? It's sort of like funkier. Huh that makes any sense yeah that makes sense i remember reading um when john prine died they had a bunch of interviews with him that they posted and um he talked about some cocktail that he would make that was apparently terrible but it involved ginger ale but he talked about either diet ginger ale or watering down ginger ale because he thought ginger ale was like like just the sweetest thing he'd ever had and it was way mm -hmm. too sweet by now we'd evolved this ginger ale to be like candy and he's probably right but now since then i've read that because i like john prine a lot i was like oh, maybe i should be trying to unsweeten my ginger ale a little bit but yeah <laughs> um okay so this kind of ties in with the book so what is in the book is all about having your spot right so what yeah is, what is your favorite spot oh man um probably uh oh there's a couple of them we grew up going to a lake uh, in Ontario, it's well known up there called Muskoka, and it's where all these cottages and stuff, they call them cottages, but they, they, they're bigger than that, I guess, but they're all on these islands in the lake. And the one we grew up going to was an older one that was built right up against the water. You can't do that anymore because it's environmental reasons and stuff, but the old, old ones were built like right against the water. So you would sit on these screened in porches, um, usually in something wicker, the lake water hitting the side of the cottage like as you're reading a book and it was it's basically all you ever want it's where you want to die it's perfect um that's that's like that's probably the best spot i can think of thank you to john clausen for the interview thank you heineman for sponsoring this episode thank you philip stead for our theme music Additional music for this episode from Mon Plazier from the Free Music Archive. Have an idea for the show? You can contact us via email at theyarnpodcast at gmail.com or visit us online at the School Library Journal website. I'm Travis Yonker. Thanks for listening. <laughs>